that behind the government is the God of this universe who sent his son Jesus into this world to die for our sins. And so with that in mind, what I'd like to do is to have us turn in our Bibles this morning to Psalm 33. Because what Psalm 33 will do for you and for me is to tie together the whole idea of God being the creator. He rules over the creation with God being ruler and he rules over the nation. And one of the great challenges is obviously when the creature substitutes himself or herself for the creator then what we have then is the effort to replace God as ruler. And humanity seeks to become ruler of the nation rather than God himself. So what I want to do with you this morning is to think about the history behind the Independence Weekend that we are experiencing and ponder what God is doing and how God reigns and how all this fits together in living our lives in 2015. We've got a lot then to think about, so we'll weave together some history, we'll look at current events, but always, always be dictated by the Word of God, verse by verse, phrase by phrase. I'd like to pick it up in verse 6, and you're going to see the tremendous emphasis upon God, the Creator here. Before there was government, there was God. And when we've got the sequence in order, we can make sense out of life itself. In verse 6, you and I are told that by the word of the Lord, heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Now the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. 
Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Oh, there's a lot here, isn't there? And so I'm going to try, by God's grace, to pull theology, history, legal matters, current events together in a few minutes and see if we can't make some sense of how this applies as we look to our Lord in prayer. Now, our Father, as we're coming into your presence, you are holy, you are righteous, you are the gracious God. We entered into this world sinful by nature, but Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity, you sent into this world to die in our place. The great substitution occurred at the cross. The challenge is, is that whether it be personally, politically, legally, we attempt to produce a reverse substitution and substitute ourselves for the Creator. And then we produce a salvation based on works rather than the authentic salvation based upon grace. And we attempt to create human law rather than look to divine law. What we desperately need personally, regionally, nationally is a revival of the heart by the work of the Holy Spirit stirring believers to once again recognize that their creator has created new creation experiences when Faith and trust is put in Jesus and his finished work alone for salvation. And so, Father, we turn to you now. We turn to you with our hearts open. We turn to you with our Bibles open because we're not interested in the opinions of humankind. We are interested in the word of God. So, Father, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. On this Independence Weekend, I'd love to be able to turn back to the events of 1776 and reflect upon where is God in the midst of it all and how is God using people in the midst of it all. A dialogue is described in Paul Johnson's book, history of the American people. Thomas Jefferson thought John Adams should write the document you and I know as the Declaration of Independence. This is how John Adams remembered their conversation. Why will you not? Jefferson asked. You ought to do it, Adams. Reason enough. What can be your reasons, Jefferson asked. John Adams, reason number one, you are a Virginian, and a Virginian ought to appear at the head of this business. Reason number two, I'm obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular, and you are very much otherwise. And reason number three, you can write ten times better than I. Well, Jefferson did a great job of it. Because as he penned the thoughts that you and I now know as the Declaration of Independence, 
As we often reflect upon, these words stand out on a weekend such as this. We hold these truths with capitalization. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator. Pause. Not their government. By their creator. With certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What you and I find then, as the psalmist begins to develop his thoughts, is something that, very frankly, the Declaration of Independence reflects. That before there was government, there was God. And that creation principles are to guide and direct the whole matter of how you and I are to live in a nation before a sovereign God who is holy and righteous. So what I want to do with you now is to look carefully at this Psalm 33. And we're going to draw out two significant descriptions of our sovereign God that will help us to better understand what's happening in 2015 internationally with ISIS, nationally with recent Supreme Court decisions, and put all this under the supremacy of our sovereign Lord and see what this means for us today. First of all, I want you to consider with me that our sovereign God is Lord over the creation. Pick it up with me at verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Immediately, before he gets to talking about nationhood, he's talking about creationhood. Before he talks about government, he talks about God. And he wants us to understand at the very onset that in the origins of this world, that this world came into being by the one who is self-existent, God himself. And this world came into being by the word of the Lord. He's speaking poetically at this point in the sixth verse. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And when you and I look at that, the very same Hebrew word is used there as was used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Look what comes next. By the breath of his mouth all their host, in verse 6. Now, In order to further understand how all this relates to you and to me, we've got to understand that the sovereign word of God, which brought this world into being, this one who can create something from nothing, can likewise create something good from something bad. That it's not man's word, it's God's word, which is sovereign over all, And so no matter what is expressed legally by the lips and the writings of humanity, it is always, always secondary to what has been expressed eternally by the one who has expressed himself via the word of God. You tie together the next phrase, the breath 
of God. And then you and I are able to pull together, okay, now I've got the heavens in proper perspective. They were made. The breath of his mouth, all the host. He brings something out of nothing. Therefore, he can even bring something good out of something bad. Years ago in France, there was a famous astronomer. He had concluded his lecture saying, I have swept the universe with my telescope, and I find no God. Famous musician replied from the audience, That statement is as unreasonable as for me to say, I have taken my violin apart, I have examined each piece with a microscope, and I find no music. You see, reality takes into account not only that which is visible, but also that which is invisible. And behind the visible creation stands the invisible God who made his son visible by entering this world via Bethlehem to be able to die on that cross in our place for our sins. So we cannot substitute ourselves for God. We can't substitute ourselves for the second member of the Trinity, but to realize that the sovereign word of God stands forth, stands strong, stands out, Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, the writer it in Hebrews chapter 1. So we're not surprised then that that fourth gospel describing likewise the one who makes the Godhead visible was able to be put this way, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So now you look at that and you inch forward into the seventh verse and you are thinking still very seriously not only about the sovereign act of creation described in God's word but also the statements in the Declaration of Independence that we commemorate on this weekend where Jefferson of all people could inform us that we they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And in verse 7, you and I are told, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He's the Lord of land and sea. Now, poetically, what he's done is retrieved for us the very historical description that was offered in Exodus chapter 15, verse 8 where the Israelites, seeking to be able to flee from captivity in Egypt, found that the waters were in essence compiled in a heap, 
so that they were able to pass through. The very same Hebrew word from Exodus chapter 15 to describe the heaping of the waters is used here now to show that God is sovereign and nature is not. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps, you see, in storehouses. You're awed? I'm amazed. We have this sense of a holy reverence of the one who has authority over this world because he is the author of this world. And then we ponder what comes next in verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And you and I are told in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We're also told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord, not the fear of humanity, not the fear of the politician, not the fear of the court justice, not the fear of anyone. It is the fear of the Lord that takes precedent over all. Years ago, PBS ran uh, a series from called Sagan. Now, remember that Sagan was the one who coined the phrase, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. He, in essence, took a, a theological point, removed God from it all, and made the creation itself to be creator at the same time. In other words, the cosmos was his deity, as it is for many people today. In fact, if you and I were to make our way into a public library to check out a book for children or for grandchildren, and we, let's say, went into a section where we wanted to find the Berenstein Bears books for a young child, in the book, the Bear family invites the young reader to join them for a nature walk. So you and I, we start out on a sunny morning, and after running into a few spider webs and so on, we read in this book in capital letters, brought across a sunrise, glazed with light rays, these familiar words, nature is all that is or was or ever will be. Now, you even find it then in children's books, this naturalistic worldview. What is the parent to do? The parent then has got to be able to show that there's an intelligent designer who stands behind this intelligent design. He spoke this world into existence, and the fingers of the one who has sovereignty over the cosmos is the one who sent Jesus into this world to die for your sins and mine. And we've got to understand and help our children and our grandchildren understand that the debate is not about the Bible versus science. The debate is about pursuing an, an, a sense of an examination of the scientific facts, allowing them to lead us where they may, and we see the imprints of the designer behind his design, and we challenge the assumptions of the naturalistic philosophies of this world, as was seen in the recent Supreme Court decision. God has set out a plan, 
he set out, you see, an intelligent design. But what we've got to do is to counter the philosophies of this world that seem to be refashioning the mindset of this nation today. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7 Fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Don't fear the earth. Fear the Lord. The one who's in charge of the cosmos. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And then in verse 9, what he wants to do is to offer you and offer me now a refresher. For he spoke. He spoke. And it came to be. And we allow our thought processes to consider Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 and 6 and 9 and onwards, where it says, And he said, and God said, He commanded and it stood firm. Now, some of you have perhaps taken the opportunity to consider a movie that came out during the 1960s, or in fact, in 1960, Inherit the wind. And in Inherit the Wind, there's a fascinating scene in which the individual that you and I would be thinking of at this point, uh, Clarence Darrow, is standing in the final scene of that movie. And what he's got in his hands are two books. One, the Bible. The other, the origin of the species. Now, allow for your mind to pause. Why was that movie produced in 1960? Our nation was in the process of removing the notion of the creator. It was rejecting the idea of authority in the, in the realm of the 60s and reemphasizing the role of the one who is created and we become self-created people even in the realm of governmental matters themselves. But the Scopes trial depicted in this movie from 1925 had to do with a man who, very frankly, was not teaching science. He was a phys ed teacher who would be occasionally uh, substituting in a, a biology class. And he was the one put on trial for supposedly teaching evolutionary principles though history tells us he couldn't quite recall what he had even said in the classroom, but the ACLU saw this as an opportunity to make inroads. And so even though creation won the battle that day, in public perception it lost the war, because at that moment then the creation rather than the creator was given primacy. Spencer Tracy played the role of Clarence Darrell, the one who was representing creation. William Jennings Bryan, three times running for president of the United States. In that closing scene, it's not Bryan, it's Clarence Darrell. The Bible in one hand and the origin of the species in the, in the other. Shrug. It's as if one hand and the other hand are meant to be two scales, you see. He simply shrugs, puts both books in his briefcase, walks away. 
Now, what fascinated me was that this debate did not occur in a science room. This debate occurred in a courtroom. Philosophic naturalism had made its way not only into the science community, but into the legal establishment. And the 60s flamed the whole approach of replacing the creator with the created. And what we desperately need are for believers to be able to argue wisely, argue effectively, and lead people from the intelligent design to the intelligent designer who sovereignly brought this world into being, created something out of nothing, so that when people are discouraged, they can understand that the God who can create something out of nothing can create something good, you see, out of something that is even perceived as bad. So now, our sovereign God is Lord over the creation, verses 6 through 9. It counters naturalistic philosophy that makes its way from, from a perception of science, which in reality is simply scientism, into the legal establishment, and thus the court ruling of the prior days which used evolutionary arguments as part of the principles involved. But what I see here now is a second description of God. Because beginning, beginning in verse 10, you and I are informed, second of all, that the, our sovereign God is Lord over the nation. In verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. And you say, Gary, can you give me an example of that? At the cross of Jesus Christ, as everything was unfolding, what we find in retrospect is that this message was being delivered on the streets of Jerusalem subsequent to that moment. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Speaking of God. So even though Herod and Pontius Pilate had plans, and the religious establishment had plans to have Jesus Christ put to death, the one who is creator of this world is ruler of this world and orchestrated events to such a degree that out of the bad came the good and Jesus Christ died on the cross and on the third day was raised from the dead for you and for me. And so we find in verse 11 that the writer goes on to say, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Now, if you and I were to go into the Supreme Court and listen carefully to the proceedings as they unfold, we'd find that the court-martial would introduce the entire session with these words, God save the United States and this honorable court, quote, 
unquote. And if you've been following current events, not only in the recent Supreme Court decisions, the 5-4 decision on homosexuality, but even in the course of these days, let your eyes go out to Oklahoma, where you would find that there was a representative that had seen that there would be a monument of the Ten Commandments established in there, only to find that a Satanist group wanted to pose then another monument, all in the argument of pluralism. What then do they have to say when preceding all of that, the most striking religious imagery our Supreme Court building is that of Moses in the Ten Commandments, affirming the Judeo-Christian roots of our legal system, they can be found in several places. At the center of the sculpture of the east portico of the Supreme Court building, inside the actual courtroom, and finally, and interestingly enough, engraved over the chair of the Chief Justice and on the bronze doors of the Supreme Court itself. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Before there was government, there was God. And before there was nation, there was creation. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, in verse 10. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The danger is replacing the creator with the creation, which again, as I cited last week, was Paul's argument, where claiming to be wise in Romans 1, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is not evolution, this is devolution. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God. You see the continual exchanges occurring? For a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. He brought the creation argument back into all of this. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men, men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and perceiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Meanwhile, the Declaration of Independence takes us back not to the creature, but the creator. And when we begin to think this way and process this way, we recognize then that God remains sovereign and he can thwart the counsel of the nations. He brings, in verse 10, the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. And I thought about that when I came across this from Chuck Colson's book, Kingdoms in Conflict. He describes a scene where he had, representing the United States, gone to the old Soviet Union. And there... You and I are finding that he's been asked and invited because he was a VIP to come and join other leaders from the old Soviet Union to observe a performance of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. Tchaikovsky's the same 
who wrote the 1812 Overture that you might have heard last night being played by bands recognizing the weekend that we're experiencing. Now, Colson writes, the Soviets spared nothing to repair the heavy damage the building suffered during World War II, restoring its 19th century elegance. The very sight of it took our breath away. Our escort, a veteran U.S. consulate officer, seemed pleased as we were shown to our orchestra seats. This is very good for protocol, he whispered. But then his smile vanished. But of course, we may not see Swan Lake, he said. I thought he was joking. Why not, I asked, prepared for a quip. Well... We know the Soviets respect your high rank in the government because you got these seats. And often when American VIPs come, they pull a switch at the last moment and put on a dreadful atheistic propaganda piece called Creation of the World. I've seen it six times, he said. But these people, I said, gesturing at the audience, they're here to see Swan Lake. They'll be in an uproar. No, they won't, the officer replied with a smile. This is the Soviet Union. As the Clarence Darrow shrugs, the question is, does this nation simply shrug? Sure enough, when the lights dimmed and the velvet curtain rose, it was not the opening strains of Tchaikovsky's masterpiece, but the strident chords of creation of the world. And I watched the faces of the surrounding audience, not a murmur. Where's the courage? Not a single expression of displeasure. 1,700 people sat stoically in their seats. It was dreary. It was a parody on the Garden of Eden where a buffoon-like character, God, contested with a vital, vigorous figure, Satan, for the soul of humanity. And in the closing scene, God retreated lamely, vanquished, leaving self-sufficient man living happily ever after in his earthly paradise. But if memory serves me correct, The Berlin Wall came down. The old Soviet Union retreated lamely, vanquished. There is a sovereign God who brings the council of the nations to nothing, frustrating the plans of the peoples, but wanting his people to see the tremendous connection between creation and nation. And you remove the creator from the classroom. When you remove the creator from society, when you remove the creator from the pulpit, you are left with nothing but the creation itself. And then man, as described, of course, in the book of Judges, does what's right in his own eyes. But then again, that's what Herod and Pilate thought. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever, and the plans of his heart to all generations Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. 
there are believers who can make a difference even when the great exchange occurs and people try to replace God with government or replace the creator with the creation. So what happens? Verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned. We sang about that. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out. He wasn't voted in. He is eternal creator, ruler. On all the inhabitants of the earth, and he who fashions the hearts of them all, there's creation principle again, observes all their deeds. But now he makes a statement that North Korea as well needs to ponder. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Now, there is historical irony in that as it relates to this weekend. Because just prior to the signing of the Declaration of Independence, 1776, in 1775, the British, feeling so threatened by by the movement of liberty, in particular, not only in Massachusetts, but in Charleston, South Carolina, they made their way into that harbor. A historian writes, an unfinished fort stood on Sullivan's Island in Charleston's harbor. Listen as you compare this with what God has to say about the world's armies. An unfinished fort stood on Sullivan's Island in Charleston's harbor. It had double walls of palmetto logs placed 16 feet apart. Sand was packed between the palmetto walls, but only the front of the fort was completed, the sides half done, the back was open. The British ships sailed into the harbor, and they ran aground. That means that some of them got stuck on shoals, the sandbars. Their ship's pilots didn't know the harbor and its safe passageways, And since they were stuck, they decided they might as well destroy the fort, unload their men, take Sullivan's Island. So they blasted their cannons, and something unbelievable happened. The shells stuck in the sides of the fort. The soft palmetto wood and the thick sand walls absorbed the shells as a sponge might. The walls just held onto the cannonballs. The British naval experts had never seen anything like this. And the soldiers who were supposed to march onto the island, well, the British had been misinformed about the depth of the water. It was too deep, and the men couldn't get to the island. The British general said, quote, it was unspeakable mortification, unquote. And what about those ships stuck on the shoals? What kind of targets did they make? You guessed it. It's target practice. The king is not saved by his great army. The colonists have been reading this passage and then anticipating Jefferson writing 
that it is from our Creator that we find our unalienable rights. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. What do we make of all this? Verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine, also waits for the Lord. You wait for the Lord. He is our help, our shield. For in the midst of the chaos of this world is the one who is supreme over the cosmos of this planet. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. And let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope, you see, in you. The cosmos is not deity. Christ is. You know, although he was in failing health, John Adams determined to survive until the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. July 4th, 1826, 50 years later. At dawn on that day, he was awakened by his servant who asked if he knew, Adams knew, what day it was. He replied, yes, the 4th of July. God was at work in this David. He then slipped into a coma. In the afternoon, he recovered consciousness and briefly murmured, Thomas Jefferson lives. And those were his last words. But unknown to him, Thomas Jefferson had died on that same day, the 4th of July, 50 years after the Declaration of Independence. Several years later, your fifth president, James Monroe, died on the 4th of July. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. And that Creator is ruler because while Washington and an Adams and a Jefferson and a Madison and a Monroe and so on die, God, the ruler, the Creator ruler, takes the Herods and the Pilots And in his master plan, takes Christ to the cross. Three days later, raised from the dead, our creator ruler has final say. And for that, we give God all the glory. Happy Independence Weekend. Let's stand together. So, Father, we need to be able to weave together all of the issues and place them firmly under your lordship. To see the relationship between matters of creation and matters of nation as penned in our Declaration of Independence. And while what we see is that the creation is attempting to replace the creator, 
what we see is not science but scientism when arguments for evolution are produced. And then when brought into the legal courtroom, what we see is naturalism attempting to replace supernaturalism. Yet we know that the creator ruler superintended the three-day-later phenomena and Jesus was raised from the dead. We put our faith and trust in the one who died for our sins, was raised on the third day, seated at the right hand, some day to return. And for this, we give you all the praise, all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.